0: Well, we are in week three of a four-week series where we have been talking about stewardship and money. And I told you at the onset of this series two weeks ago that most preachers don't like talking about money. You know, most preachers just don't, don't like even going there. Surveys say we'd rather preach a sermon on hell than we would preach a sermon on money. And I think at least part of the reason why preachers don't always like preaching about it is because... We think that you will think that we're just trying to be self-serving, that we're just in it for the money, that that we're just preaching about money, so you'll give more, so we'll get more. And and certainly we've all seen stories and read stories about, you know, scandalous stories really, even about, um, you know, kind of self-absorbed preachers and ministers and church leaders who basically got into religion because they thought it could make them rich. And they, you know, made some very poor choices when it came to taking money and how they use their money. And, and we that's probably why we have so many jokes about self-absorbed ministers and preachers and, and when it comes to money. So I figured I'd tell you one more uh, this, this morning. You may have heard the one about the rancher who called the church and the secretary answered and the rancher said, well, I'd like to talk to the head hog. And the secretary said, well, if you mean our senior minister, we would never refer to him so disrespectfully. And the rancher said, well, ma'am, I, I mean no harm. I just know your church has a building program going on, and I was thinking about donating $100,000. And the secretary said, sir, you just stay on the line. I think the big pig is walking in right now. Endless jokes, right? So if preachers oftentimes don't like to talk about money, you might be wondering, well, then why in the world are you doing a series talking about money and, and stewardship? Well, I guess the simple answer is because Jesus talked about money. So if Jesus talked about money, we want to talk about what Jesus found to be important enough to talk about. A better question, though, maybe is why does Jesus talk so much about money? Because after all, it's not like he needs money, right? But what he wants is disciples. And Jesus knew that the heart goes wherever the treasure is. That's why he said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus wants your heart. That's why he talks so much about your money. And I believe that you can do nothing better than to trust your heart to Jesus. And so if I want you to trust your heart to Jesus, then I must challenge you to trust your money to Jesus as well. Because if your heart goes where your treasure is, then we need to make sure that our treasure is in the right place. Because you, you follow the money to find out who is serious about following Jesus. Because the reality is you cannot detach discipleship from stewardship and vice versa. You, you cannot separate those two things. And if you're going to get a degree in discipleship, then a required course is what we're calling kingdom economics. Where we learn that we own nothing. We steward everything. And as we're going to talk about today, we do Something. So let me just do a little quick review of what we've talked about so far leading up to this series uh, or in throughout this series. Kingdom Economics 101 is simple. God owns it all. That's what we talked about the very first week. God owns it all. And as we talked about, this is a top button issue. Okay? In other words, if you don't get the top button right on shirt, every other button on the way down is going to be wrong. And the same is true when it comes to this idea of ownership, this reality of ownership. If we get ownership wrong and who really owns it all, then everything else we believe about stewardship is going to be wrong. And God never rescinds, he never surrenders his claim to own everything. And as I said last week, you may not totally agree with everything I talk, talk about throughout this series, or. It's in the Bible, so hopefully you agree with it, but you may not buy into it. You may not totally, you know, understand everything that we're talking about. And again, you may not even totally believe it if you're maybe on the edge or on the fence about how you feel about God. But there is one thing that we can all agree on, and it's this. You came into this world with nothing, and when you die, you will leave taking nothing with you. And what that means, whether we like it or not, whether we totally buy into it or not, what that means is that everything we have, everything we own, is on loan. That's Kingdom Economics 101. So because we everything we own is on loan, here's Kingdom Economics 201. We must manage God's trust fund. We understand that we are not entitled owners. Instead, we are entrusted stewards who will have to give an account for our management of what has been given to us. One of the questions, some of you are teachers, one of the questions you, you know that kids like to ask uh, to teachers, especially high school students, college students, maybe even some middle school students, uh, they, they like to ask the question, is this going to be on the test, right? Teacher, is is this going to be on the test? Well, when Jesus told all these parables about the owner who goes away on a trip and he puts the stewards in charge when the owner comes back because the owner always comes back in every story the owner always comes back when he comes back the owner makes the steward makes the manager of what he's left to them makes them give an account of their stewardship so what's jesus's point it's simple this is going to be on the test Don't be surprised when you get to the end of time, you know, end of your time on this earth when Jesus asks you to give an account because this is going to be on the test. Your stewardship is going to be on the test. You cannot separate stewardship from discipleship. It's not an option. It is essential. And as disciples, we live by radically different economic principles because we believe that we are citizens of a radically different kingdom, And now we're ready for Kingdom Economics 301. And it's this Stewardship requires constant intention. Stewardship requires constant intention. Now, I did not say attention, although that's important as well, but I said intention. Here's what I mean you do not drift into a Kingdom Economics lifestyle, you do not accidentally stumble into becoming a good. Steward. No, you get there on purpose because you deliberately pursue a different economic game plan. Stewardship is more walk than it is talk. In Matthew chapter 25, a passage that we looked at last week, Jesus tells a story about an owner who's about to go on a journey and he gives three different amounts to three different stewards or three different, he gives to three different stewards, three different amounts of his money uh, for them to manage. And listen to what verse 16 says. It says, the man who had received five bags of gold, so five, two, and once, how much they got. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work. Here's what I've learned, not only in seeing other people's lives, but in my life. People who say, someday I'm going to be a good steward, Never become good stewards because some day never comes. You will not do then what you will not start now. So start and do something with all of these things that we've been talking about throughout this series. So here's what I want to do for the rest of our time uh, this morning or today or whatever it is that you're watching this. I just want to get really practical. As many of you know, uh, that's one of the things that I, I you know, when, I, when, we, when we teach, when we go into our teaching time, uh, there, there's times for, for getting deep and theological. But so often, I, I just want to get real practical, and that's what I want to do uh, today with you. And I just want to give you seven areas where we need to do something, seven areas where we just need to do something. Now, all seven of these may not apply to you. you, know, you, you not, all seven of them may not apply specifically to you. But my guess is that, that at least one of them, and probably several of them will apply to at least one or all of some of these will apply to every single one of you. I'm getting my words tied up. So all seven may not apply. I'll say it again. all seven may not apply, but at least one and probably more than one will apply to every single person listening to me right now, especially number one, many of us need to do something to get out of financial bondage. We need to do something to get out of financial bondage. Studies show that one of the top areas where many Christians, not just people in general, but many Christians feel enslaved is in finances and in money. And that's most of the time because many of us, if not all of us, and when I say us, I include myself in that, because many of us have drunk and are still drinking the Kool-Aid of the culture that says play now and pay later. Play now and pay later. And that is a path to prison. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 21, verse five. Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. Why do people wind up in bondage? Because they take a shortcut and they get now what they should have waited later to have. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. It, it, it's right there in the Bible. The Bible could not be more clear. Debt puts us in bondage. And there are far too many of us as Christians who think that somehow we are members of Congress and we can spend what we don't have. And we need to learn to act our wage because debt as a lifestyle will hinder our capacity to live freely in the kingdom of God. Did you know that the IRS says that the average filer pays 10 times more in interest on debt, not in debt, but ten times more in interest on debt than they give to charity. That's mind-boggling, to me. Now, here's the truth: you can wander into debt. I mean, you, you can wander into debt, and you get to a point where you didn't realize that you were this far into debt. But you cannot wander out of debt. You have to be intentional to get. Free, And some of us need to be intentional. Maybe that means cutting up some credit cards, right? Doing some plastic surgery and stop living like debt is our provider instead of God. Like the credit cards are our provider instead of God. And some of us may even need to humble ourselves and and get some financial counseling help. There is story after story. I love listening to Dave Ramsey and he tells story after story as well. But there is story after story where people were tired of living in bondage to their debt. And so they started down a path to get free, and with with just a little intentionality, within just a few years, they had gotten out of debt. Completely debt-free within just a few years. And with a lot of intentionality, a lot of them got out of debt even sooner than that. And here's what every single one of them would tell you. They would say, it wasn't easy. It's not easy. Like, like, again, you can wander into debt, but it's not easy getting out of it. You don't wander out of it. It is not easy. They had to say no to many good things, not because it was wrong to have them, because it, but because it wasn't right to have them right then and right now. But now, because they were intentional, they're free. And I like what one person in particular said. he said it was fun. <laughs> It was fun to be able to give to the kingdom more than we ever had before. And it was fun to be able to make money our servant instead of having to serve money. You are not to serve money. You are to make money your servant. And learning God-honoring money management is one of the most spiritual things that you and I can do. So do something. Whether you're in debt or not, because here's the second thing, all of us need to be proactive and do something to protect our hearts from money lies. We need to do something to protect our hearts from money lies. One of the main reasons why Jesus talks so much about money is because I think Jesus knew that nothing has the potential to be a God substitute like money. Nothing has the potential to be a God substitute like money. Money can mimic God More than anything else can, money will offer you significance, security, identity, status. It can't deliver, but it will promise, and it will mimic God. That's why Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. Now, here's the truth. You're going to give your heart. You're going to give your first allegiance to whatever you think has the most power to bless your life. And if you think it's money and stuff and possessions, then that's where your heart will go. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. Idolatry is when you give first to something that ought to be second. And it always leads to ruin. Not sometimes, not most of the time. It always leads to ruin. To ruin, the, Paul, the apostle Paul writes in First Timothy chapter six, verse ten: "For the love of money, I want to be clear on that. Sometimes that gets misquoted. Just it's not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, in fact, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs." Jesus never told anybody that the answer to their problems was to get more money. He never told anybody that. What we need is more faith in the goodness of God. What we need is more conviction in the priority of his kingdom. You can't always protect your assets. I mean, you know that, right? You and I can't always protect our assets. Even Jesus said there's moths, there's rust, there's thieves who break in and steal. I mean, there's always something. In fact, there are things happening right now in our world that you can't control that could affect your net worth tomorrow. You can't always protect your assets, but here's what you can protect. Your heart. You can protect your heart. So how do we do that? Well, we start by doing what we're doing in this series, right? We're reading through, we're familiarizing ourselves, we're, we're studying what Jesus and what the Bible as a whole has to say about money. God created us So what does he have to say about what's best for our lives, especially when it comes to money and finances? I think another thing that's helpful helpful is just to think about how rich we truly are. First, to think about how rich we are in Jesus Christ. I mean, just to think about all of the spiritual blessings that you and I have because we are a son or a daughter in Jesus Christ, not the least of which is the eternal life that we've been given and the hope we have of heaven and the salvation from our sins in the here and the now, but also how rich you are in terms of material blessings, Because we are blessed beyond belief spiritually, but you and I, comparatively speaking, in our country, and as, as compared to the rest of the world, are rich beyond belief there as well. And here's another thing I think will help, and that is to become a consistently generous giver. Because when you give generously, you dethrone money's power to lie to your heart. I'll say it again, you are not to serve money. You are to make money, your servant, for Jesus' sake. And that leads to number three, third thing we need to do. We need to do something to support the mission of the local church. We need to do something to support the mission of the local church. Now, let me say um, that some of this is my humble opinion, so you can take it for what it's worth. Although I do think there's scripture that backs up what I'm going to say, so I'm not just you know, giving it to you out of, out of a whim or out of my own selfish desires. Um, but I don't want to be legalistic about this, and I also, again, don't want to be self-serving about this. So, you know, again, some of this is, is my thoughts on this, but here's my, my thoughts on this and, and what Marcy and I have tried to do. Marcy, Marcy and I have always tried, or at least not always, but we, we have tried to, to um, steward our finances by two convictions. One, that we are going to support our local church first. That's that's our first priority. First and foremost, we're going to support the, the church where we are attending and we are going and we are a part of. And secondly, that we are going to do that. The way we're going to do that is that we are going to tithe and we should at least tithe. Now, I know some people don't agree with that for a couple of different reasons. For one, some will say, well, I want to give wherever I want to give. And, and I, I don't want someone else telling me, you know, where my money's going. I, I decide where my money is going to go. Here's the problem with that. The, the tithe belongs to the Lord. The Bible is very clear about that. God is very clear about that. You didn't bring your tithe to the temple and then tell the priest where it was going to go. No, the tithe belonged to the Lord. Now, after you gave your tithe, then you could give free will offerings and you could give to whatever you wanted to. But the tithe belongs to to the Lord. And you see this principle in the New Testament. I mean, you have people who are selling what they had, and they would bring their gifts to the apostles' feet and they would lay it at their feet, and they would let the, the apostles, the leaders there, decide where that money went, what they what they should do with that money. Of course, others will say, Well, I don't want to tithe, it's too legalistic. Okay, I, I don't think it has to be, but if you think it's too legalistic to give 10%, then give eleven percent. Give 12%. Give 15%, give 8%, 9%, whatever. I, I'm not gonna tell you how much to give. I'm just gonna tell you what the Bible says is the way that, that, that we show God, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that he owns 100% is, is that we tithe. We give 10% uh, of what he has given to us to him first. So I'm not gonna tell you what to give. My point is simply to say this, do something. However much it is, do something. Something because, with all her flaws, the church is still Jesus' chosen agency to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and to this world. And some of you listening to me right now wouldn't know Jesus today if it weren't for the work and the mission of this church. And just from a, a practical standpoint, doesn't it make sense that we would financially support the church where we get spiritually fed? I mean, this is the church where we bring our kids. This is the church where we come and we get our encouragement and our nourishment and our fellowship. Doesn't it make sense that we would want to financially support the church and the body where we get that encouragement and that nourishment and that fellowship? Now, let me be clear. You do not have to give to come to this church or to be a part of this church, okay? But this church exists for you to come to because somebody gives and so I believe my first responsibility is to support my local church and I believe that I ought to tithe to do that and to advance the work of the God work of God through my church and what happens is when I do that I actually find the work of God is advancing in me as well which leads to number four we need to do something to model the joy of generosity to others we need to do something to, mo- to model the joy of generosity to others. You know, I've also often heard uh, people referred to as prayer warriors. Maybe you've even said that yourself. Maybe you've even been referred to uh, as that. I know some of you listening are. and I would refer to you as that. Uh, you know, she's a prayer warrior. He's a prayer warrior. Why don't we ever talk about giving warriors? I- I've never heard someone called a giving warrior. And yet the New Testament is full of celebrating generosity testimonies. In the book of Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 4, you have a guy by the name of Barnabas who sold a field and brought the money, brought the proceeds, all of the money to the apostles, laid it at their feet. And because of his generosity, not just in that instance, but just because of his generosity, period, the, the group of believers there renamed him Son of Encouragement. They renamed him Son of Encouragement because of his generosity the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, let me tell you about the grace that God has given uh, the Macedonian churches. He says, In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us. When's the last time you pleaded with somebody for the privilege of sharing and giving in this service to the lord's people you know why they were doing that you know why the lord loves a cheerful giver it's because cheerful giving spreads cheer paul goes on to say just a few verses later in verse seven but since you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you see to it that you also excel in this grace of giving And so if God is doing a work in you and he's teaching you to find more joy in generosity and you're growing in the grace of giving, share what God is doing in your life with those around you, not to boast or to brag. And Jesus would, I I understand Jesus would talk other places about not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing. And he's talking about being arrogant in our giving and boastful in our giving. That's not why we do it but rather we do it to point back to the one who gave us the ability to give in the first place because generosity is contagious. And our joy in generosity can infect and inspire each other to be more generous. And speaking of passing on generosity, that's especially true when it comes to us as parents. And so if you have children, here's the next thing we need to do. We need to do something to teach our kids about God and money. We need to do something to teach our kids about God and money. Because here's the deal. If you don't, culture will. If you don't, culture will. And they will drink the Kool-Aid of the culture. Don't let that happen. Don't let culture put chains on your children. The Bible tells parents in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, to bring up your kids in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And so if Jesus talked as much as he did about money, that it only makes sense that if we're going to bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord, that we would talk about money as well. We would talk about stewardship and godly ways that we handle, and the godly ways we handle our money. And so you have to find age-appropriate ways to, to start teaching them kingdom economic principles. Children need to be taught that mine is really only a word that God gets to use. They need to be taught the value of work. They need to be taught the value of giving to others and sharing in what we've been blessed. They need to be taught that that you can have a lot and still not be content. And you can also be content and still not have a lot. And most of all, they need to see us walk it and not just talk it. Let me ask you, do your kids know that you support God with your money? Do your kids know how important it is that you return to God what he has blessed you and your family with? Have you ever sat down and talked to them about that? Do they see you doing that on a regular basis? Don't pass on wealth to the next generation if you haven't passed on wisdom for using that wealth. Which leads to the next thing we need to do. We need to do something to ensure that our barn honors God when we die. Do something to ensure that your barn honors God when you die. Because your stewardship decisions, whether they are foolish or wise, that does not matter because they are going to outlive you. Now, we want to be wise, but either way, they're going to outlive us. The way you manage money is going to have a ripple effect that will last longer than you. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story about a rich farmer who had a bumper crop. We've talked about this story a couple times so far in this series. And so he has a bumper crop. Rich farmer has a bumper crop. His barn is is full. He's got plenty extra. But instead of being generous with what he has, he decides to hoard it to himself. He tears down his barn and builds a bigger one to keep all of that for himself. Here's how the story ends in verse 20. God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Let me ask you a question. What's going to happen to your barn? What's going to happen to your barn? What will God, what will, will what God, it's a tongue twister, will what God has loaned you honor him after you die? Now, some of you may be thinking, well, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm younger and I got plenty of time left. Well, guess what? You and I aren't promised tomorrow. We're not even really promised today, no matter how young are we are. In fact, I bet that rich farmer thought he had plenty of years left, and yet God said, no, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. And so this applies to all of us. And when you die, whenever that may be, I'm not wishing it on you, and I'm not trying to be morbid here, but when you die, your stuff, your money is going to, one, is going to three places, taxes, heirs, and charity. And a good steward decides what those percentages are going to be. Because here's the deal. Like it or not, something is going to happen to your barn because you cannot take it with you. As I said, you came into this world with nothing, and when you die, you will take nothing with you. Something's going to happen to your barn because you can't take it with you. So make sure you do something with your barn that's still adding to your heavenly portfolio and still helping to bring heaven to earth years after you're gone. Of course, when it comes to bringing heaven to earth, that's not just after you die because God might, in fact, want you to do something and start emptying your barn before you die as well. And that leads us to the last thing, number seven. God calls us to do something to testify to the absurdity of grace. God calls us to do something to testify to the absurdity of grace. You see, when it comes to generosity, it was God who made the first and greatest move. In fact, Christianity is founded on an act of scandalously illogical grace. Here's what might be the most important stewardship verse in the Bible. Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Grace is not logical, it is crazy. It is absurd, it makes no sense, and people whose hearts have truly been changed by grace suddenly find themselves willing to do things that are absurd, that are crazy. I mean, what is logical about a poverty-stricken widow with only two coins left to her name going to the temple and giving it all to God? Jesus is there. He watches her do this, and he doesn't stop her. In fact, he praises her, and he says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. What is logical about that? What is logical about a single woman in a culture that had no safety net for women, and whose life savings is in a jar of perfume, opening up that jar of perfume and pouring it all out on Jesus to honor him. And Jesus doesn't do anything to stop her either. Now, there are some there who criticize her and say that she could have done something better with that money, and Jesus could have done something better with that money, and Jesus does something to stop them And then he says this, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Why? Because she is a living illustration of the absurdity of grace. Because you see, when you love somebody so much, you do what might not make sense. Grace has never made sense. And God wants us to steward our money in a way that challenges the ways of this world. And it may not make a whole lot of sense if you are primarily a citizen of the kingdoms of this world. But it makes all the sense in the world if you are primarily a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And let me remind you that nothing in the history of the world ever seemed more absurd at the time than the cross of Jesus. But when we needed generosity, God did something. And now it's our turn to do something and to give out of what's been given to us.